All right, guys. Welcome back to the Adam Peter Fitz Podcast. Today on the show, I have uh, Mr. Sean Mariega, Hamstring Copy. If you guys know him on um, his Instagram account. Um, but Sean has been in the powerlifting space for quite some time. Um, Sean was actually one of the first powerlifters I came across, along with like Charlie Dixon and like Russell Orhe. Um, and Sean is really strong and really, really smart. He's also um, a co-owner of, or a co- I think co-owner of Powerlifting Now. Um, so puts out a lot of really good powerlifting content. Really smart himself as coaching uh, full-time um, as a quiet roster, a full-time quiet roster and a team of coaches under him. Um, I think Sean has a lot of really, really good perspectives on this. Uh, lots of these are the sport that um, I really want to just pick his brain on this podcast. So, yeah, unless I'm missing anything I about yourself, Sean, anything you want people to know about you? No, no, man. I appreciate you having me on. I mean, you pretty much covered it. You know, I've been in the sport for about 10 years now. Um, have coached for about eight of those years, eight or nine of those years. And um, in the past few years, I've started a coaching team, and then in the past year, uh, began powerlifting now with a few other coaches, and pretty much my entire goal outside of being an athlete has been to coach and, and educate uh, within this sport. I, I kind of feel like that's been my my calling, um, you know, both in and outside of powerlifting is to, to teach, so... So one of the things I think that's unique about you is that you're, um, you know, you, you you coach yourself and as well as you are, um, you know, you're, you're high level, also a high level athlete, but you're also a high level level coach. I think that, you know, most coaches, you don't see that. Either they're a really good coach, really good athlete. I think you and Marcellus are actually very unique with that. And I think Matt too. Um, how do you handle, I guess, like, you know, being a, like a high level athlete and also coaching at a high level? Because I think that's uniquely challenging um, with, you know, the nature of, of, of the job and, you know, having that pressure to, to perform? Um, I mean, I can't say there are too, like, I would say in general, there aren't too many circumstances where they feel as though they interfere with each other. I mean, to be totally honest with you, um, I think, cause I think we've seen over the course of powerlifting history, like people who are like high level athletes also coach, but they're clearly like athletes first mentally. Um, and I think at one point in my, in my life, I definitely had a very maybe obsessive, uh, you know, point of view surrounding my training where I, where I made everything about training. Um, not to say that coaching ever suffered with that. Cause that was also just being in the powerlifting space. That was what mattered to me, but there was definitely a point in my life where powerlifting itself was, was too, uh, I was too immersed in it mentally um, and I can see how for for some people, if if their co- if their athlete or competitive side of things takes on that that role and coaching goes by the wayside, then then you can run into issues. But I think especially in the past few years, you know, it's it's become very uh, it's very clear that there's only so much you can do in a day to be a good athlete. Um, and I've taken a pretty, I guess, detached view from that like i think i've i've definitely built up good habits over so many years where now i can be like very i don't know free flowing and robotic about the athlete side of things you know cooking and eating properly you know getting the sleep that i need to taking training seriously and just kind of being off my phone for that period of time um but I, i've just always loved coaching um that's something that honestly like i know that there's going to come a day where i stop competing and past that point i guarantee i will still be coaching um, you know, the only, the only obstacles I've ever really run into are when it comes to being at, you know, nationals, let's say, and I have lifters who 
uh, are competing the same day I do, because at that point it is a situation of like, okay, I'm going to be competing tonight. I can't be handling during the day. And I think that kind of the overlap of that being a common occurrence um, and me starting a coaching team was really fortunate because, you know, there was a point in time where, you know, maybe I'd have 10 people doing nationals. They kind of be, they would be freely scattered uh, across the the competitive week and things would be fine, right? Maybe I get one person who competes the same day I do and, and I have someone handle them. But I mean, this past year and the year before, I had 15 people competing the same day I do because I coach a lot of middleweight men, especially. So with that, it's like, okay, well, you know, you have, you have lifters, you have an obligation. Um, and I've been lucky to have, you know, the roster of coaches that I do who have been willing to and able to step up and, and handle those lifters on the day um, or people who are coaches that like we kind of trust as extensions of the team and, and a lot of the lifters um, who I would pair with them are familiar with them. Um, so that's, that's really the only, I guess, interference that I've, I've really noticed or seen. I know that I've had, you know, just to, just to, you know, give a couple examples. Like I've definitely had lifters like, like Chris Perez, um, who's a very high level 83 kilo lifter who in part um, parted ways with me as a coach because he was trying to beat me, you know? And I think that he felt like it, there was a weird dynamic of like, okay, you coach me, but I'm going to be competing against you and very well could out total you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, it, it's tough to say that there's ever really been like some sort of like existential crisis where I'm like, Oh, you know, it's difficult to, to give my all to both. Cause I think that they, they, they ask for two very different things, I guess I would say. Yeah, I mean, I'm not anywhere near the, you know, the level of competitor that, that, that you are. Um, but I noticed that for myself, it turns into like what you said of like having those different hats and basically saying, okay, like right now I need to be the athlete. I need to be focused on my own training. Like, for example, I coach a lot of lifters on my gym. And, you know, sometimes I have to say like, you know, I'm, I'm training right now. Um, you know, I'm going to go and make sure that I am focusing on myself. I'll take care of your, your guys after. That's been something that's been really helpful with me, just basically having that separation between training and then coaching. But um, yeah. for myself, another big thing has just been like offloading the whole coaching thing of like my, myself of like making programming decisions, having all that pressure be on me because as I know, like my mindset, I'm very much like a very analytical overthinker. Um, mm -hmm. And I will, you know, something feels off. It's like, I can, I've got better this as a advanced athlete. I'm more used to like, okay, sometimes turning sucks. I and mean, like, there's no good reason for it. Your, your primary day sucks. You're off, you know, you're down 5% strength, whatever. But I think that for myself, like having that security blanket of like a coach and like knowing like, like for, like, for example, like I started going skiing on Saturdays and it has affected my performance, my primary squat day. And I have some thoughts on how to change around the, like, the, the split to accommodate that. Um, but I think being a coach too is like a whole, it's a fully different skill set too. I think it says a lot about, um, you as an athlete and also like as a coach being able to do both those things because i think it's really important um i've had conversations with like steve and matt and marcellus about this and they've all said like i think it's really important regardless of like if you're actually kind of you're a high level athlete that you're still stay involved in the sport um and up to date with you know what people are currently doing and i thought joel stank about this too on our podcast of like modern periodization and like things have changed a lot <laughs> since like yeah. in like 29 like 19 if you don't have that finger on the pulse like you're going to be left behind because obviously the, the, the athlete pool of powerlifters is growing. Um, and I think that's a large part of why um, athletes are so much stronger. 
But I also think the coaching is just getting better. We know what makes people stronger and we're open to, you know, ditching the typical like block prioritization and whatever. And, you know, this kind of goes into one of my questions for you about like block to block changes, because typically, you know, most powerlifting coaches know that you want to find out a microcycle and then what works running this, you need to see their time to hunt peak, stuff like that. Um, but I have had some thoughts and questions myself about how necessary is it to like change things block to block? Because I don't think it's a big difference going from like, a, like eights to sevens, for example, even though, you know, I might just do that just like, just because, um, yeah. What's your thought process behind like making changes? When does it make sense to, and as coaches, do we sometimes we just make changes because we want to, but we're doing something and to keep our athletes like happy with like, Oh, I'm working still. Yeah. 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 So I mean, I'll, I'll address the last thing that you said first, just because it's not really like a, like athlete, right. When you mention um, like athlete adherence or athlete enjoyment, right. That's very much like a, just like a soft skill or self-awareness of like, okay, like I need to make sure that this person stays engaged. Right. But it's more of like a, a psychological thing than a, maybe what might be best like programming in a vacuum. So um, yeah, I mean, there definitely are times where I just want to make it clear to an athlete, like, Hey, you know, we, this is the reason I would like to not change these things. But if you're feeling some sort of demotivation or, or kind of uh, lack of, of, of intensity, here's the set of things that I think could be changes that won't be like disruptive ultimately. Um, but if we're talking like working with an athlete who's just going to be adherent, they understand the purpose of, of a coach and, and why, you know, they'll ultimately put the trust in, in the decisions that you make. I mean, you are right from the programming side of things. Periodizing is not really like true periodizing on like a, a linear time scale as much anymore. Right. Like you said, you kind of just find what, what works and you run with it. Um, in terms of changes, I mean, the way that I like to think about it is when it comes to like top sets um, is trying to figure out like where an athlete's momentum is at, at any given point in time. And I know momentum is kind of like a, maybe a vague term to use in this situation, but I think intuitively we can kind of tell, let's say you have an athlete who's run, you know, three blocks of, of singles. Let's just make it easy, right? There's clearly a way to tell whether or not that athlete is is on the upswing with momentum or on the downswing, right? And and the the most obvious way would be, you know, they take a single, what is their E1RM based on that single, right? Did they, you know, are they hitting a given weight that they've hit before faster than they ever have? Have they touched a weight that they've never touched before, right? Or you have momentum in the sense that week to week, maybe we're seeing upticks in bar weight without really a significant uptick in, in RPE, right? In contrast, you can tell when momentum is dying, right? There have been, and I can, I know this from experience. I'm sure you've had the same occurrence where maybe you rerun a block structure or you, you know, maybe even take a step down and you go from triples to doubles or something like that, or, or doubles to singles. And that block, that final block that you're in, despite more bar weight being, you know, more load being put on the bar, they're not better than the previous block, right? You might have somebody take a triple with 270 kilos and it moves at eight and a half to nine, let's say. And then the next block, they take 277.5 kilos for a double and it moves at like 10. You put more weight on the bar, do they actually get better? No, probably not, right? So I always try to kind of assess like, where is this athlete's moment, momentum at, right? It's like reading like a, a, a chart for like a stock's price, right? It's like, where are we at 
in that in that journey um because what i decide to do with top set progression kind of depends on not just the data in front of me but like the predictive power of okay where are we going to go from here right is this athlete capable of actually pushing things for another block or do we need to kind of reset the macro cycle in its entirety are we at the end of the road essentially in in this progression right because i think that there is a lot of a lot to be exhausted from any given microcycle structure over the long term <clears throat> but if you just do it in perpetuity with no resets you might run into a wall and it might make you think oh we need to change things drastically when in reality they just need some sort of systematic reset either through you know deloading on volume deloading on intensity whatever it might be so that's usually my thought uh, or i guess guiding principle when it comes to manipulating top sets and ultimately manipulating like what the end goal is for a block like not every block needs to end in some sort of like rp nine and a half ten top set right we can have bridges to that point or i guess wave loading would be the the common terminology now where you you know step down incrementally and then work up to an incrementally higher ending place um when it comes to manipulating rep ranges like let's say on the back end where you know maybe they're i mean it could be triples fours five sixes sevens eights right like it there's a whole set right and that's a whole different conversation for why we would want certain rep ranges but with any given lifter usually what I try to do is figure out like what sets of rep ranges are kind of interchangeable for them. And consequently, like where are they stable to work in and where do things become volatile? And what I mean by that is, you know, like you said, sevens might be the same as eights. Um, and there might be circumstances where there's more to be gained out of those eights, right? Like if we're still in a phase of training where the momentum is riding on those top sets, then I might say, well, we're still moving well, right? Like we're still on the upswing. So why am I going to touch those back downs? Let's just keep it the way that it is. Maybe I decide for some reason or another that the, the, the top sets can incrementally step down because I want to push towards some sort of higher intensity. But if I perceive that there's this ongoing momentum, I don't, I don't really need to touch that. Um, but I could end up in a situation where I'm trying to find a way to, you know, increase the overall stress of their training, not just on the top at top set end. Um, or I'm simply curious on finding what those boundaries are. So going back to when I said volatility and stability, eights could be like sevens, but sixes could be way different than sevens. And obviously I'm, I'm over exaggerating here, but there certainly are ranges of reps that for some people, the response is equal, or you can, you know, to, to take that to a, a bigger extreme, there are plenty of lifters who you can like block periodize with, right? And they get the desired result, right? You could go from doing a three by eight, one block on your, let's say your primary squat day to like a four by six or a four by five on that same day in the successive block and have great results, right? But there are some lifters where like their response to a certain set of rep ranges, be it let's say seven to nine for argument's sake, right? That might be restricting them to a certain percentage of their one RM um, in a way that allows them to like, you know, move fast for a majority of the set to recover appropriately for their, you know, successive training weeks. But then once you dip below that, maybe the stress of the intensity is too high, or maybe they're good enough at reps that they're now able to tap into a new, you know, intensity range that they previously weren't. 
And now like your tonnage looks way different from week to week. Maybe they're like where they get sore differs from week to week. I'm just naming all like the different, I guess, possibilities that can arise from this. But basically my goal is to always, if I figured out fundamentally a structure that works, my goal is to never really, you know, hopefully at least never leave that stable zone on the rep ranges that I feel are, are consequential toward their progress. Um, and I know that Steve has made a post about this before. I don't know why this is the one that comes to mind, but it does. It was with uh, when he worked with Anas Anbar, where it was like their deadlift uh, rep work. And he was saying that like they had tried doing like uh, fives and sixes, I believe, and previously had done fours as like the, the main work on that. Um, I don't remember which day, so I'm not going to make it up. But it was one of the deadlift days that were like, yeah, we always worked with fours. Then we tried to go to fives or sixes and like things would just fall apart. So then we just came back to fours and like whatever sort of problem solving strategy that they used, they closed that door and looked in other areas and that yielded success. It was like flipping a switch and, and everything was fine. And, you know, I know for myself pretty much throughout the entirety of like my successful deadlift career, I would call it. Um, I've never really dropped, you know, rep work below sets of, six, seven, really. Um, because any time that I would, you know, try to work in a mid to low rep range is like the bulk of my, my workload, my deadlift would tank. Um, and I remember when I first realized that back in 2019, I didn't really know why. All I knew was that because I, at the time I worked with, with Joey Flex, who, you know, block periodizes, I remember that I would just have really good like off season deadlifts. And then as we would make our way into prep, like squat would blow up, deadlift would kind of hold on. And I'd be like, oh, well, you know, the taper will take care of it. And then I'd show up to meet day. I'd still feel good, but it was like, oh, 12 weeks ago, I pulled, you know, 700 for an easy single. And then meet day 700 was really, really hard. Um, so yeah, long ramble there, but I hope that that answers the question. No, I mean, man, it's not an easy answer. Um, and I think that I have, you know, every power first experience, I've experienced this with all my, you know, everything I've done, like on bench press, like, you know, like I seem to respond best to like, since it's like five to 10, I, I, I know every single time when I do like most of my volume, like one to five, like I just, I detain, I get too fatigued. Um, and I know that Steve has made some video on like, you know, maybe this is because of range of motion. And I haven't really found that to be the case, to be honest with you. I, I don't know why some people respond better to certain rep ranges, but um, some people just absolutely do. And um, it's it's not easy to exactly determine that. And like, you're absolutely right too. Like, I think that when we're making changes, it's like, there might not be like a big difference on paper between like sevens and eights, but at the same time, like maybe that is enough of a change in terms of like, you know, average loading on the bar having that one rep down where you're now out of your most productive um, spot to adapt. And I think especially as you get more and more advanced, um, your range of like what actually works gets, gets more and more and more narrow, which is why mm -hmm. typically you see people like yourself who don't really change too much block to block. It's like you're going to keep running like the same thing. You might change a top set here and there, but you have so much data, you know, like what works. You don't like really want to get away from that. Um, I think one other thing too is that um, I guess in terms of like making changes, I think I, I do think a lot of it does come down to like what is like, it's really like what you find like, like momentum. I don't think you want to change that because if you found that momentum, like there's no reason to necessarily change things. Um, unless, you know, somebody is getting some sort of pain or, you know, they have more muscle soreness or, 
or, or whatnot. And um, I mean, I think like with, with my, my deadlift, for example, it's like, I think especially like, like the microcycle like structure of like where you're replacing that stress matters the most and not necessarily like the reps. Um, but I, I'm not, I, that's been something that's always puzzled me. It's like, why do some people respond better to higher reps and, and, and lower reps and, and, and whatnot? And I just don't, I don't think it necessarily matters a lot. I know Mike Tudor's been like talking about this, like analyzing him too, or like, he doesn't know why some people just respond best to certain rep, rep ranges. It's just that you just know that some people just, they get really lots, they get lots of momentum and they're able to see PRs back to back. And, you know, like I have one of my clients, Austin, like every time they go twice to be squatting and deadlifting, he just tanks, like just absolutely tanks, just gets back to you like crazy. And also like you're talking about this, like if we do box of singles, he just doesn't do well. His best blocks have been triples, <laughs> just triples, triples, triples. And like, there's not really a good reason to not do that if it's not working, especially because like, He's pretty much been able to do a YOLO single at the end of like his well of blocks of triples and always PR. I don't think it necessarily matters. Um, I think the scope practice does matter in the sense of like, yeah, like and Brian Minor and I had a podcast about like why higher intensities tend to be better for, for strength, but like it's all relative to that lifter, like what they can actually tolerate well. Um, is like I know that with my deadlift, I do very well with singles. Um, I just seem to respond better better to that. I'm rather squats and bench press, I can't do that. I need more variation. Um, mm. so like we can be like, I think I, that basically means like for myself, like you look at my, my lifts, so I think that makes sense because my deadlifts my most advanced lift. So makes sense. That's why it's more of a narrow band of like what works. But then as I got, you know, I'm still building my bench and my squat more works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. And, uh, I'm just trying to remember what I was going to address here really quick, but yeah, I mean, you make a great point, like with Mike, to, like. Mike's comment has been something that I've definitely held on to for a very long time of like, do I need to really know why it works? Like, I think that, you know, we are at this point, you know, like scientists in the powerlifting world in the sense that like, we have these assumptions, we gather data. And if we have, you know, repeatability, right, like we're just going to keep doing it. Like, I don't need a proof, right? Like I, I <laughs> the, the proof is the, is the, is the athlete outcome, right? I don't need a, a meta analysis because, you know, exercise science and like a lot of, you know, studies done on, on, on lifters, usually, you know, you see those studies, it's like some either untrained yeah. people or someone who can squat like 1.5 X body weight. It's like, there's no, there's no lab that, that has ever had a cohort that accurately or, or, you know, honestly represents, the population pool that we're working with. Um, and my thing is just like, I think that we'll eventually get our answer. Why? Um, because I think that we've done, I think that it's just going to take time because we start with Mike Tashir's, you know, statement of like, I don't need to necessarily know why it works. I just know that it works and I'm going to keep doing it over time. We've had situations where we've done that that have led to now characterizing the types of people that fall into those categories, right? I think that there was a point in time where we couldn't actually say, oh, well, this type of athlete would respond well to this, while this type of athlete would respond well to that. We would just have, you know, an N of one where my athlete responds well to this and my others don't. But I think now we actually have rules that we follow that more broadly categorize types of people who will respond to certain things better. Um, and, you know, this is something that we talked about on the powerlifting now podcast where, you know, Steve had asked like, okay, you have like 
you know, what makes one coach, let's say, better than, than another coach. And I think that the experience specifically defined as being able to look at a new athlete and have an entire reference in your head of either people you've worked with, people you currently work with, or people that your colleagues have worked with, to be able to say, you move like that person, your training that you're coming to me with is like the antithesis to what someone who looks like you does. And clearly it wasn't working. Like you have so much, so many reference points to be able to make a good decision faster. Um, and I'm sure that in, in years time, we'll be able to more accurately, you know, describe, um, you know, why certain things work or don't, you know, I remember, I'm trying to remember when exactly it was, it might've been around 2019, 2020. I remember because I was really adamant and vocal about the concept of rep range sensitivity. I remember there were some coaches making posts kind of in response to not necessarily just me, but the, that narrative being more publicly discussed saying that like, there are no magic rep ranges. And it's like, I mean, yes, there are no magic rep ranges in general, but there certainly are ways of, of programming any given lift with rep ranges being a major part of that, that for a lifter can make or break their, their performance on that lift. And I think that now that's a very genuine, genu uh, generally and widely accepted idea. I do think that tonnage is something that we've gotten too far away from personally. Um, I talked to Johnny Kaufman about this at my gym last Friday, and I've noticed that one of the big things that happens between people believe they get stronger. And certainly myself is the polarity between like your secondary day and your prior day, like loading or like intensity has to get so much greater. Um, just because, you know, if you're Johnny Kaufman, you're deadlifting eight, like eight fifty, like, you know, you, if you're still doing like sets of five with like 700 pounds, that, like that's a lot of trauma. Um, and I think that the polarity in terms of intensity needs to be greater. Um, and I think that's due to, due to tonnage is my, my, my only, my one pet theory about that is that I think it has to do with tonnage. I think that lots of times too, like the sets kind of don't need to change a lot. Like, I think that as you get stronger, like you kind of just get better over time. Like, and your tonnage is naturally going to slightly like increase. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't think that. I, I think that it comes back a lot to that concept of tonnage and total work performed during a week. Um, this is a lot of my personal experience with, you know, athletes as they've gotten stronger has been like, you know, we had to manage loading more to accommodate for that across like the week. And as mm -hmm. I've kind of done and gone like some of the, the math, I'm like, Oh, this is keeping my tonnage more similar, but because they're stronger as we change and like how we like their percent back down work or, um, how we're dividing that stress. Like I've had some athletes who like uh, one of my clients, Trevor, um, we squatted 606 and like, you're we doing like three by sixes and he just mm -hmm. got super like, like fatigue for just, and then I was like, let's see the same back down intent, like percent drop. We're going to screw like a six by three and just had this massive explosion. And mm -hmm. it was, it's, it's, it's tough to like, you know, it was like the tonnage was, was the same, but then how we did that in terms of the average intensity was like different. Yeah. But like, you still need that, like that much work. But I also do think with what you said about like knowing like what athletes like look like and like their leverages and how they move and whatever, that is a huge part of like, and Brennan Papp and I were just talking about this before the podcast about how like, that's been something that we've, that we've always noticed is that it's been that experience of knowing what somebody is looking like and what they're moving, moving like the things that they're saying and what's like worked in the past. And as well as like your, your network, which is why I've, I've already been powerful with coaches because we are way, be way behind in terms of 
price point. <laughs> um, a, a good reason to price raise your prices, you have more experience. Yep. That's a good reason why. Um, so I know I kind of rambled there, but there's a, that, those are some of my, my thoughts on this. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you, I think you raise a good point. The one thing I'll say is like, when it comes to tonnage, right? Like it's, it's very much a, like the way that I view tonnage is very similar to how uh, Steve has verbalized uh, like his concern for tonnage, which is that it's a good measure of like increased stress when comparing block to block. Um, and I like it as a metric in that circumstance. I'll kind of explain why I think that it's not that it's not worth tracking in the short term, but more so that like you kind of intuitively do anyway, right? Like if you start a new block with a lifter or maybe you're just starting, you know, maybe a post meat prep uh, block with one of your already existing lifters, like when you're looking at what has worked well for them from a total set count standpoint, when you're looking at what has worked well for them from a rep range standpoint, like if you're abiding by those principles, chances are tonnage is going to, um, you know, the, the correlation between taking those things into account and being within a reasonable range of like previously successful tonnages, it's usually going to overlap. Um, but you do absolutely end up in situations where, training kind of gets away from you where you make it four five, six blocks down the road and the wheels kind of fall off and you're not really sure why. And you're like, well, we haven't really changed that much, but then you go and look at the tonnage of block six compared to block one or two. And you're like, whoa, like we had way too massive an uptick way too quickly. So I kind of see it as like a, like, I, I'm sure you've, you, you've heard the term or, you know, people who use like the acute to chronic workload ratio. Yeah. Um, and I think that with how modern powerlifters program, we don't really have upticks in, in volume or anything like that from week to week within most blocks anymore. That used to be a thing where people would push set counts. Most people don't, right? So the acute to chronic workload ratio is never really going to move in any appreciable way on the time scale of week to week for most of us anymore, right? But I kind of view those changes in tonnage as being the new, you know, acute to chronic workload ratio or like the new scale to evaluate that on. Because I mean, exactly what you mentioned, if a lifter gets either, let's say we started programming high rep on something that they previously never did high reps on, say deadlift, they get really good at it. Now their tonnage goes way, way, way up because not only could they be one, just getting stronger overall, right? Because that's the first, I guess, let me backtrack. That would be the first reason that tonnage goes up and can be problematic yes. in a cumulative way, right? If you get way stronger, right, you might be doing <clears throat> just way more workload for any given rep range because you're better, right? And this is this gives a lot of credence to the idea of, of kind of like, you know, uh, something I've been doing more, and I, and I definitely give credit to, to Marcellus for this, is like holding people back on their, on their primary day back down work. Yes. Um, in terms of actually like prescribing workload on that day specifically um, because well now I'm going into a, a bunch of different tangents, but I promise I'll make my way back. Um, something that I think is important is that, you know, the primary day is going to be your highest performing day. That's also going to be the day where you, you know, uh, are pushing towards some sort of conclusion in the block. Right. And I think that if you keep the primary day work um, solely RP based, and this isn't, Keeping it solely RP based is not inherently bad, but I think that if you were in a situation where an athlete maybe 
isn't good at selecting loads themselves, or you're really just as a coach, you know the lifter well, and you want to make sure that you're controlling all the variables you can, um, you can kind of have this like parabolic shape to what their back downs or what their volume looks like. Yeah. It's like beginning of the block, fitness is not the highest, performance is not the highest. So the single might be mediocre, um, and the back downs will be mediocre because I'm just not that strong yet, but the single is also not heavy enough that it fatigues me for the back downs. And then as I make my way through the block, fitness gets better, performance gets better. The top single gets a bit better. The back downs are better because I'm stronger, but the top single still isn't heavy enough to beat me up. Now we get to the latter half of that block where the singles are going up, but now the singles are more fatiguing for my back down stuff. So it's like now you had, you had like small disparity between your single and back downs in terms of percentage drop. And then you get better at the singles and the back, back down work follows it. And then you get better at the singles and the back down work like drops off. You kind of see what I'm saying here. Yes. That yeah. a lot. Where now you have this like completely um, <clears throat> uncontrolled sort of like outcome of, of what you're doing for the majority of your workload uh, as a result of where the, the top sets go. So I think that like controlling for, for those sets um, is a really useful strategy for preventing any sort of unpredictable changes in tonnage from happening. The second thing that now, so that was the point one is like, if you get too strong too, too quickly, you can have turbulence in either direction. Either you zap yourself for back downs or you end up in some cases like taking it way too heavy, whatever. The second thing, which was my original thought was that if you, you know, program some sort of novel stimulus or, or just something that someone's responding really well to, right? Like maybe they're not getting stronger to a, a, an insane degree on the top end, but the skill set of doing those sixes or those eights just got way better and you're running with it. And now you're four blocks in and you've gone from hitting, you know, 65% on average for your sets of eight to maybe like 77% on average for your back down sets of eight. And now what that, that day looks like and the purpose it serves both for performance and what it allows you to achieve in terms of recovery has changed so drastically. So a very long-winded way to say that I think that, um, you know, when it comes to tracking tonnage, I think that it's always useful to have that metric, but I wouldn't really, you're not going to catch me looking at it until we make it maybe several blocks into the future and things start to kind of, you know, drop off. And now we need to figure out what actually happened because if the, the underlying microcycle structure stayed the same, that's probably the first place I'm going to look. I think that's a great point with, you know, hey, you know, we're not making big changes regardless, usually block to block with, with coaches, especially once you find what, what works. And that is really the the key. I think the main key is like, you know, like if you find what works, you've got trends with certain lifts, kind of just going to say more or less similar in terms of like, you know, sets that you're doing volume. Um, I guess my main, main, main point with that is that like, I find that like, like, like what you said on, on the back down work, um, the intensity um, progression or the intensity distribution has to somewhat change a little bit um, as athletes get more advanced with, you know, what you said, you know, having that very small, maybe 2% increase on your back down work on your primary day, like that auto-regulated day, like, you know, your top end be auto-regulated a little bit more. Um, my coach and I did that on my bench training this past block and PR um, because I would just have those really exponential, like it would actually kind of like lost side or like my week one would be like my strongest. 
then week four would suck because I was so high performing and like low fatigue on that for first week. I could never peak properly. Um, I think my second point with that, with that intensity is that, you know, going off of that point too, with secondary days or tertiary days or whatever you, you are doing, you know, this comes down to what conversations Aiden and I have had about priming and, and whatnot. Sometimes you need to have an athlete who they do need that heavier loading in terms of their you know, going into their primary day. And that's when, you know, okay, we got, we got to have a, you know, so have an, a second auto-regulated top set. And Kelly man, you know, says like this is, could be also be described as like a second primary day, for example, yeah. if you're having, you know, a second top set. Um, but then you might have a large back down drop more comparatively for like, maybe you went from, you know, being a 600 pound deadlifter to a 700 pound deadlifter. Maybe you go from minus 7% for like back downs, like say so they do a three, three by five, top set at five to seven, minus 7% or something like that. You might need to go to minus 12% to help manage that that fatigue as the weight is getting heavier. Because I have seen anecdotally and I've experienced this too. If I'm going up by that much in my in my rep max, um, if I don't adjust my back to work in accordance with that or how much fatigue I'm getting from or more stimulus, therefore by having that being being stronger, that's when tonnage tends to get skewed a little bit. And that's why people stall. That's also what you were kind of saying with well for seeing like these big changes in tonnage, maybe we, we can go back. But like I think especially with like People in powerlifting don't do that RP thing of like progressing sets week to week. Like, you know, I, I don't think that's necessary at all, even in bodybuilding. But like, it's usually going to be changes in intensity and tonnage. And I know Steve has a whole video on this on his YouTube channel for free, which is fantastic. Versus that's the number of things where he, where he manipulates um, across a powerlifter's training career. And that's what I find I typically do as well. As long as we know like the microcycle structure is sound and it's still working well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I think that it, uh, it sounds like you, I mean, obviously, I, you know, being, I've, you know, just to be completely transparent, right? Like prior to us getting on this podcast, like I've obviously known you, but I don't know what your coaching has been like through, through your experience. And like, I think it's very clear that on your coach athlete relationship, like you as the athlete and you with your coach, like you both have the 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 collective brain to like analyze your training woes properly and then it seems like you've really like you know exactly what you're looking for with your athletes as well so it just i mean it's just cool to to hear obviously we've never sat down and actually talked about about programming so well i i think that you know if you if you, know, if you have a full-time powerlifting business and you have like you know a client of like roster that's like you're probably looking for yourself like you you have similar thoughts i think too also others, I think it's pretty normal as a powerlifting coach is be like, am I, am I just crazy? Like, like what's like, am I still like, am I seeing like, I don't know why it's just working. Like, is anybody else like, like noticing this? But like, it's something that I've, I've just noticed. And I think that like, I've had some athletes who like are very like laid back and they like respond a lot to like a lot of, of, of different things to athletes are like more neurotic and like data driven. Like they need to see the progress and they don't see the progress. Like, like we tweak, they start to like freak out. And yeah. I think that this is one of the big keys I've had as an athlete is like thumb blocks just suck and you didn't change anything. Like you're like, what the heck happened? Like this was working well and it's not. And it's so easy to like pull the plug then. But like I've told people this, and this is something that, you know, going into my meet last time, I was like, bench is not meeting in progress. This is really embarrassing. And it's like, well, I can't really do much about it. You know, I've done everything I possibly could with, 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 my, with my coach. He made changes. And sometimes you just need more time to make adaptations. I think that's one of the tricky things too about like 
competing and being a good powerlifter is that you might go into a meet when like you're trending into your training just it sucks for like no good good reason and um it's a difficult sport because i know Stephanie Cohen's talking about this like it's like you literally have nine attempts and if one of those attempts goes wrong it's like what do you do like you either take that attempt again you get a lower total or you go or you just take that that, that risk and increase getting even lower total or even even higher total um I think that's why as coaches, like we tend to really rely on the, these trends more often and then the not. And I think it's why like the best, like I think more powerlifters are, are heading in this, dire this direction where they stay with their coaches for a long time. Like you shouldn't just switch a, a coach, especially if, like as long as like, if you guys have had something that was working well, if something isn't working well, like the worst thing that you can do actually is just go off in a different, different direction because then you're going to go for somebody who actually has data on you and knows how you tick. Somebody has no prior background information. You have to create a whole another, you know, relationship with them and, and trust. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, right. Like obviously on the coaches side of things and the best coaches are usually one going to be good, good planners of their athletes training. And two, they usually make the right decisions, but ultimately the meat, the meat doesn't care where your training is at, right? Like the meat is scheduled when the meat is. And sometimes shit falls off the table. Um, and yeah, I mean, I agree with you about, about, uh, about athletes and, and coaches, you know, it's, uh, I, I think that I I've kind of seen in some, in some ways athletes staying with coaches longer and in some ways, um, they're kind of being this like established set. And I think it's a good thing. Um, but now there's like an established set of like, okay, these are the top coaches. Like these are the guys, there's not like a lot of like like backroom discussions of, Oh, like this coach is really good. Or this coach is really good. Like people kind of like have this, this idea of, okay, these are the guys you would want to go to. And I think that it, it does a lot of athletes, you know, a disservice uh, to, you know, just like hop, right. Like you said, to, to a, to a new coach, because they see, you know, Oh, they're doing this. And, and, you know, they have this athlete who's progressing. So I want to go there. And it's like, if you originally trusted your coach fundamentally because you thought he was a good problem solver, then you should always trust the guy who has, you know, more data than less. Um, obviously, there, you know, a whole dis there's a whole discussion of why you could have very many reasons that are good for leaving a coach. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've, I kind of have seen that lately to a degree where people are just like, they just want to go where the best results are. I think that's always been the case, but I feel like it's... Uh, in in maybe more i don't know i don't know i'm I'm rambling at this point but no i mean it, it's 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 a difficult conversation because like you said there there are reasons why you would leave a coach but i think my, my general point there was uh you know if you've seen past good good success with this coach you know they they carry up good give good communication um you know you should probably stick with them um and there's lots of data with there like the reason why eric and i like have such a good, you know, I've worked with Eric for like two, for like two years. Like he's had like 200 pounds by total in two, two years, like not much body weight gain. Um, and like, we have had several periods of training where like we haven't seen progress on certain lifts. And I think that it really needs to be said that that's normal. I think people expect crazy progress all the time. Um, I think it's also kind of, I do this as a coach too. I'll remind my athletes, well, if you add five pounds to your squat and your deadlift and two half pounds to your, 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 your bench press every single month, like block to block, well, that's, you know, 150 pounds on your total per year. But, you know, going back with Mike Tashir's, you know, points, like there's not always that response. You like to think it's linear. Sometimes you get, sometimes you get worse than exponentially better. Sometimes nothing happens. And then you add 20 pounds to your lift in one month that makes up for those past four months. Um, 
I think the matter is that you keep training and that you keep trying to problem solve along that time period because you are going to eventually find something in my in my personal experience that is going to have a breakthrough. But um, there are also lifters where like they could re they reach a point where they're just having like diminished re returns with their with their training. It seems like no matter what they do, like it's just really slow. Um, and this is one thing I want to pick your brain about too, because um, I'm sure you've had this experience too. You know, what do you do if you're noticing like you know you know what works for you? Or, you know, you've been training for a certain long amount of, amount of time, um, or you got somebody who said, like, hey, I got the X strong, you know, maybe they have a 500, 500 dots, but it's just really hard for them to get, to get stronger. And they've seemingly tried everything. Like, what are some strategies or where's your head go like, 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 like with that? Because, you know, the joke is like, just take a bodybuilding, you know, but like, what if somebody's really dead set on like, I want to be like a 550 dots or just, I know this isn't like my cap where they just love training and most much for powerlifting. Like, what are some strategies for those athletes in terms of like, helping them still make progress because I think that's one of, what, one of the hardest things is as a coach, because I think lots of times we get those intermediate lifters, those, those beginners, what do you do with like, maybe those people that just, they just have, you just can't find like what's working for them. They just seem to have a really bad response. Well, I think that's a, I guess the question is, is phrased a little, what am I trying to say here? I don't necessarily like how the question is phrased because I understand what you're trying to ask, but I wouldn't say that they're like, I would say that we, we haven't tried everything if we're at that point, like the, 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 the environment that I imagine myself being in, cause this has happened before where you get athletes who are high level, they have the, the passion and the fire for the sport, but we've just been stuck. When that happens, I would usually say that that is, that is taking place because we are stuck in the, we're trying to work within the parameters of what has worked historically, which for 99% of our, our, you know, uh, coaching career, that's the, that's the successful way to go about solving any problem is like, okay, given the data that we've had, as well as like, you know, what has worked for this lifter, like, let's try to make changes within this mindset or within these parameters. And I think that sometimes, you know, you you have to shed that bias and and simply look at what's in front of you. So like I, I, I'm saying all this because the the part two of the Powerlifting Now series that I'm doing right now um, on Stephen Day is specifically going to be about um, coming back from injury and having a microcycle structure that takes you to all time bests that looks nothing like what you ran for two plus years prior. And I think this is the most extreme example of having to shed your biases because you're, you're forced to from a like work capacity and tolerance standpoint, because the lifter was doing something that looks nothing like what they used to do when they were healthy. But that begs the question, do you just go back to what you were doing beforehand? I think the answer is no. Like, I don't think that that's an intelligent thing to do. I don't think that even if you were durable enough to do it, I don't think that it's going to yield the best results. So similarly, right, like this, this issue of athlete stagnation, it's, it's this principle or this concept, but to a lesser degree, because you have to be willing to say, okay, what we've been doing might not work anymore. And I've experienced that with my own lifts, right, with my squat, like my squat has been, you know, for a long while, was responding really, really well to a certain way of training. And then for years, it went to shit. And I think for a big portion of those years, I tried to work within the framework of what worked well in the past. And that was a dud. 
and I had to try something completely new. Um, like during the COVID year, for example, that was probably my best, you know, best period of squatting consistently, I would say, um, you know, in the first four years of like my squat being stagnant. And I ran like a, it was like a five, like five, three, one layout, basically. Actually, I was consulting Brian Minor during that time. Um, and the layout that we came up with was like, I had, you know, uh, it was like a top set of five on day one, followed by like two light back down sets of five. My middle day was like just singles. And then my third day was like a top triple and two back down triples. Like it was, it was so unbelievably different than anything I'd ever done before. And I had squatted, I think it was like 650 during that prep. And then um, I think I squatted like 285 in, in comp, but it was like a, it was a second attempt. So it was like, I missed my opener on depth, retook it, then jumped to my second attempt and then hit it. And that was fine. Um, but I think in the case of like athlete stagnation, you need to, one, I think what's really helpful is to kind of, I mean, this is always helpful with athletes is to get on a call with them and actually talk through what's going on. Um, and like I said, that's always important to do. But what I would say is that we almost get used to the type of feedback athletes give us, right? Like, especially if we've been working with an athlete for, for a long period of time, like sure, we're going to get times where, you know, maybe they feel super beat or, you know, maybe they didn't get a lot of sleep or whatever, but we get used to how that athlete communicates certain issues to us. And I think that it's actually helpful to sit down and be able to say like, okay, like, what is it that you're actually feeling? Because, you know, you might get new information out of them that they otherwise wouldn't have communicated in kind of their normal day-to-day -day dialogue. Like I think both parties get habituated in how they communicate to each other. Um, and, you know, I'm in those circumstances, like I'd be totally willing um, in the event that, you know, things really aren't progressing if we've tried everything quote unquote, um, to really get outside of the box with it. Um, and those would be the times where you do make like maybe some of the drastic changes that inexperienced coaches are making on a block to block basis. Like this might be a time to, you know, try, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example, actually, uh, David Chan, David Chan is one of my 83 kilo, or I guess 82 and a half kilo lifters, um, phenomenally strong squatter and, and, and deadlifter. Um, but his bench was terrible for years on end. And we had started working together at the end of 2019. And in onboarding, we started a five day a week bench structure um, because he was previously doing four and it just like wasn't working and he felt recovered and all that sort of stuff. And it went really, really well. Went really well for about a year. And then you know, he was getting like overzealous and I was getting overzealous. It was both of us really where, you know, he had clearly like made the bulk of the progress he was going to make on that layout. And he was like, I feel, I feel really good. Like I feel really recovered. Like I, I think I can handle more. And at that point in time, like I was definitely programming bench at a higher frequency for most people on average. So leaning into my bias, I was like, yeah, like, let's try six days, see what happens. Right. Like you're, you're, you crushed five days, your body's recovering really well. Like, let's see if we can get more out of more. And we tried six days. There were like some key sessions that he had that maybe indicated that we were getting a little bit better, but overall things didn't really improve. So we tried that for maybe, you know, a few months 
And then we went back to five days and bench just sucked, right? Like we had, it was probably like two and a half years. So the first year, the first half year, so we're at a year and a half. And then we had another additional year on top of that, bringing us to the two and a half years of just trying to troubleshoot within what we believe to be the framework that would yield success for him and nothing. Like he was stuck at that like 160 kilo range. And then he had an injury relating to his lower body that really put uh, squat and deadlifts on the back burner. And he went from having the best meet of his life at Warcat at the end of 2021 um, to, you know, having to rehab squat and deadlift with an already bums, bum bench that he didn't really have a good mental outlook on. So it's very demoralizing situation to be in where you have like the one lift that you kind of always are like, eh, like this lift's just going to suck forever, but at least I have these other two. And then he, you know, hurt his back and glute and then you have nothing now. So it was kind of a, in that moment where I was like, okay, we've had an incredibly long period of being stagnant on bench, trying to be very like fine tuning and systematic with things. And now he also has the other two thirds of his powerlifting career, like taken away. Right. From my side of things, I see the urgency and the desperation because I'm like, I don't want this kid to quit powerlifting. Like, I don't want him to hate this because he's having such a miserable time. Like, I have a great relationship with David. I love David. Like, he's, I want to see him succeed to the point where I'm like, I, I'll, I'll do anything from the coaching side of things to make sure that he does not quit this sport. And I'm looking at his training and I'm like, you know what? Like, this dude does not have muscle mass. And I was like, and, and we've tried in incremental ways to feed in weighted dips, to feed in chest press, to feed in, you know, direct tricep work, whatever it is. But if I'm clinging on to this idea that I need a certain level of specificity on bench, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to be chasing two, two rabbits and cash neither, you know? And it was, it was at that point where I was like, you know what? Like, I don't even think that it makes sense to go from, you know, to try to incorporate more bodybuilding stuff on the five day structure. I don't even think just with how his week would look that four days is going to be enough to fit all of this in. So I cut him down to three days of benching and only one of them was comp bench. He was doing three days of bench. The first day was a, uh, a medium grip Larson press. The middle day was like a close grip touch and go. And the third day was the comp day. And we took out singles entirely for the sake of removing any sort of mental attachment to what I should be capable of on the top end. I think we had started off with like, it was like sets of five. Um, and with that spacing, the amount of bodybuilding work we were able to fit in was exponentially higher than, than anything that we could have done on a four or five day a week structure. And within two blocks, he was hitting sets of five with his like previous best triples or doubles. We get to the point of doing triples. He's hitting triples with his best singles. That's like across like a four or five month span. So, you know, I would say I've been in these situations where it's like you have a high level lifter who seemingly is not going to make any progress. And like in those moments, being able to sit down and talk with the lifter, see where they're at. It, it was almost like the the gravity of my my fear that he was going to quit the sport is what directly influenced like the severity of the programming change that I made. And like now, you know, going forward now, it's been, I guess, two years from that point in time, a little bit less than two years. 
I mean, he's probably going to be a 400 plus pound bencher in 2024. And like in terms of the, the overarching structure that we have, it looks almost identical to what we were doing during that phase. The only change that we've really made now is, so we, we made a drastic change because we needed to. The only change we've made now has been more of an incremental one where like the session that precedes his primary, I do have him take like a couple like practice singles that are like kind of light, but the, the low specificity throughout the course of the entire week is, is exactly the same. Um, and like I said, I mean, his best, his best meat bench was like 162 during the period of, of higher specificity, his commonly best single in blocks that follow that meet was like 160. And I mean, now he's at the point of, you know, tripling 170. It's just, it's, it's crazy change. And I know I'm talking about just like a sample size of one, but I mean, that is how I would tackle that problem. Like you, 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 you have to be willing to, you know, I don't think it's unscientific to not be, you know, incremental in those cases. I mean, the, the, the scientific aspect of it is that you've, you've tried everything within the parameters, you know, so the response must come from something outside of your, 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 you know, worldview, I guess, so to speak of that person's training. It's funny that you say that because um, when I was like, I was had a period of bench stagnation for like a year and a half. And like, mm -hmm. I told Eric, I'm like, bro, like I came from a bodybuilding background. I don't want to do the three times we, we, we benching this structure. Like, let's not do this anymore. And I took like a period or like a block or two where I just did twice a week benching did a ton of body work, just smashed my chest. And then like, you know, I started getting some momentum on bench and then we slowly went up to like four times a week. I never done four times a week and I hit 380, but then I got hurt. And then, like, I recently had to go back to, like, two times a week. And we're back at, like, three times a week. It's more of, like, a structure that, you know, is, like, less specific. Um, and that has really allowed my bench to start seeing some momentum. But I think this is also a testament to, like, how good, you know, you are also, like, Brad Cooliar. Like, I, I know Charlie's training very in-depth. And uh, Charlie used to do a ton of volume. The tons of yep. high volume, high specificity, high intensity, too. And now, like, you know, he's doing, like, six by three squats. Charlie is programming is, like, six sets of foot like comp squat like per per week it's pretty light on back down work and he is pretty light secondary day and not a lot of accessory work and like bench press used to do four times a week now he's doing basically two times a week with one single in the middle of that with like three fifth like three fifteen like and like that's a good you know i think that's a really great point that you said there of like you tried everything the exact opposite thing of what you tried maybe you tried it you said that you tried everything is within like what you know and that's when you need to explain your coaching toolbox and say but what's something that is completely opposite that might make some sense to do and then try that? It's like there's not a really big cost at that point. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, like your your guiding principles can still lead you toward the opposite. Like your like our fundamental principles of coaching, right? Are like they 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 apply to what am I trying to say here? Every coach uses those fundamental principles to apply to any decisions they make with an athlete and you can have two athletes on completely opposite sides of the spectrum. So it's not like you're, you're going outside of your, your understanding of, of coaching. It's just that you have to go outside of the way that you've perceived this specific athlete, right? It's like, you're I was going to try to make an analogy there. I was going to say like you, you know, you, you've, but yeah. All right. I'll just, I'll it's just all good. It. Yeah. I'll leave it there. Yeah. I mean, I, in all honesty, like it, it, it is, uh, you know, being resourceful in those situations, 
requires sometimes like very, I don't know, drastic changes. Changes, yeah. Well, Sean, thank you so much for coming on. This is awesome. Uh, we didn't even get to like even like one eighth of what I wanted to go over. So we'll probably probably see if I can get you on maybe like Brad or something like that, for like a, a round table if we can do that in the future. But um, well, I think thank you a lot for uh, coming on on the podcast. Uh, people want to find you or hire you for coaching. What's the best way to do that? Yeah. So, um, I mean, my Instagram is at hamstring poppy. Um, if you're subscribed to powerlifting now, then obviously you see my videos on there, which are all, um, just educational based videos. If you're not subscribed to powerlifting now, I highly recommend it. Um, it's an educational platform started by, uh, myself, Steve DeNovi, Marcellus Williams, Matt Cronin, Marshall Powell. Um, and our goal is to just be the powerlifters library, you know, putting out educational content for athletes and coaches. Um, I, I very highly recommend it. I don't think that there's a better resource for coaching or athlete education in the sport. And I think that it's going to get to a point where all of, all of the information will get centralized on there. So we're very excited for that. Um, website teamnoria.com If you want to inquire with, uh, myself or any of the coaches on my staff at this point in time, I'm personally full, but I do have coaches um, on the team who are, who are looking to take on athletes. So. Great. I'll make sure I include all that stuff in the show notes and thank you guys for listening. I'll talk to you guys in the next episode.